Thank you, thank you, my brother. Everybody take your Bibles and turn as quickly as you can to 2 Kings chapter number 4, please. 2 Kings chapter number 4, and it's a wonderful thing. We've got to get right into the message. I understand we've got a wonderful meal waiting after the service. And um, somebody said that uh, when it comes to preaching, the mind can only absorb what the body can endure. And so I'm going to get right into the message. Somebody else said, to be a good speaker and well thought of, you must stand up, speak up, and then shut up. And so I'm going to try to do all three here this morning at one time. It's wonderful to be here. I'm glad to see everybody. I'd forgotten that Ben and Sarah were here at the church until I saw Ben in my class. I kept looking at him. I thought, that's Ben. What is he doing here? And uh, uh, unless, unless the preacher didn't explain it clear enough, Sarah's brother married my daughter. Okay? So now you got it clear. Sarah's brother married my daughter. And uh, I have five daughters. And uh, <clears throat> Jerry White married one of them, and Jerry White is a brother to Sarah. And so that's the way that happened. And I met Sarah first. I think Sarah was about 12 years old. First time I met her was in her home, ate in her home uh, with her mom and dad and her brother Jerry and uh, her little brother. By the way, where is he now? In the Baptist College? Good. In where? Indiana Baptist College. Okay, good. But I wondered, I'd, I'd lost track of where he got to. But I'm so glad to see you this morning, and we need to get right into the message because <coughs> people get to thinking about food, and uh, from, what I, from the fragrance I smelled, it is not a diet food menu this morning. It is the good stuff. And uh, diets are a wonderful thing in their place. You know, it has now been proven that those who eat very healthy and get, stay away from sugar and don't drink soda pop and don't eat white flour die healthier than people who don't. Did you know that? It has now been proven. That's a fact of life. And uh, so also there's a diet for everything that comes along anymore. Uh, there, by the way, there's a stress diet. And if you haven't heard what it is, it, it'll cure the stress uh, I have a copy of it here, and don't try to copy it now, but if you'd like a copy, I can give it to you after service. Here's what you eat. It'll relieve, alleviate stress. For breakfast, you eat a half a grapefruit, one slice of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skilled milk. That's for breakfast. For lunch, you eat four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, one cup of steamed zucchini, and one Oreo cookie. Now that's for lunch. And then for a mid-afternoon snack, you eat the rest of the package of Oreos. <clears throat> one quart of Rocky Road ice cream and a whole jar of hot fudge. <clears throat> then for dinner that evening, you eat a large pepperoni and mushroom pizza, two loaves of garlic bread, three Milky Ways, and the entire Sara Lee cheesecake direct from the freezer. That'll solve the stress. That'll take care of it right there. And uh, how many believes it'll work? Raise your hand. It'll kill you, but it'll, it'll take away the stress. One lady, <clears throat> she said, I'm determined, first of the year, I'm determined I'm going to lose weight. So she said, I went to an exercise club. And she said, I had never been to an exercise club before. I didn't even know what they did at the exercise club. But she said, I went. She said it was a one-hour class. And she said, for one solid hour, I stretched, I bent, I gyrated, I went to the left, I went to the right, I went forward, I went backwards. For one solid hour, I stretched and bent and stooped and got up. But by the time I got those leotards on, the class was over with. And uh, so she, didn't, she wasn't too successful. Uh, but anyway, it's wonderful to eat good food and enjoy it. 
and uh, praise the Lord for that. Uh, now, I'm open to 2 Kings chapter number 4. And uh, the title of the message is, Will You Please Shut the Door? <clears throat> My brother Gray has a sermon called, Will You Please Shut the Book? I've never heard it. Uh, Rodney Bale in, uh, not Rodney Bale, but brother George Bale in Columbus, Ohio, I preach for him. He has a sermon called, Would You Please Shut Your Mouth? And uh, I've got one called, Would You Please Shut the Door? And so I'm hoping mine will be the better of the three, but it may not be. Let's get into it and find out. Second Kings chapter number four and verse number eight. I hate to bother you. You look so comfortable sitting there, but I'm going to have you stand up. Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Second <clears throat> Kings chapter four and starting in verse number eight. Follow with me now because the context of the story has a whole lot to do with where we're going in the message. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned him thither to eat bread. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed, a table, a stool, a candlestick, and it shall be that when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. Now stop right there. <coughs> Here's Elijah. Elisha passing by, and uh, he has his servant with him, and he's on the way to minister, and he stops by where there was a great woman, a great woman of God, a great woman of faith, and when the Bible says she was a great woman, that means she was a great woman. And I don't have time to tell you why, biblically, I could show you from this chapter that she was a great woman, because I'm going another direction. I want to tell you something else that made her great, and I'll tell you about that. But this man of God and his servant would often stop by there and stay with them. And I don't know what the accommodations were like. I'm sure they were comfortable. But she said to her husband one day, she said, you know, I perceive that this is a great man of God that passeth by us continually. What do you say? Let's make him a prophet's chamber. Let's make a little room up here on the wall. And in this room, let's put a bed and a candlestick and a table and a stool. And whenever he comes by, he'll have a place to stay. It'll be his own little room, a prophet's chamber. Her husband agreed, and so it was. She fixed this little room. Now, <clears throat> Elisha and his servant would commonly stop by. One day, when they were staying there on their way, overnight on their way to another city to minister, Elisha said to his servant, you know, this woman has been careful for us with all this care. She's done so much for us, the food, the accommodations, we don't pay a thing, she just does this for us. What did we ever do for her? What did we ever do to pay her back? He said, nothing. He said, well, go find out what she wants. He went and asked her, said, would you like to be spoken of to the king? We'll give you a promotion. We, we can get you moved up. You and your husband can live in a bigger house in a bigger place with a bigger circumstance. No, 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 she said. I, I, don't, I, I, I love my situation. I dwell with mine own people. Leave me alone. That was another reason she was a great woman. She was content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. People that are successful and people that are great in the eyes of God are content and uh, be content with such things as you have the Bible says just be happy happiness is not wanting what you get it's getting what you want and uh, so but anyway she said no don't don't bother me I'm, I'm doing okay 
So he came back and told Elisha, said, she, she got everything she wants. She don't, she don't want a promotion. And Elisha said, well, tell me, is, can you think of anything? He said, well, uh, she never had a baby. And she always wanted a baby, never had a baby. He said, go call her. She came in, and Elisha looked down at her and said, according to the time of life, you're going to have a child. Oh, no, don't, don't lie to thine headmaid. No, 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 no. Oh, no. I, I, I went through that. There was a time when I, those seasons, I longed to have, I guess every woman longs to cradle a little baby in her arm. But, but uh, I'm way past that. That's, that was the old days. I'm, I'm done. He said, no, according to the time of life, you're going to have a child. And sure enough, guess what? Miracle of miracles. About 10 months later, she gave birth to a wonderful little boy. That little fellow grew up. There's no record in the Bible that he ever did anything except be a blessing to everybody. And the Bible teaches us that he was about grown, and he was out in the field with his father, verse number 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. Now look up at me. So he's working in the field, and all of a sudden he says, oh, 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 my head. Probably an aneurysm, probably a stroke. The Bible's not clear. It's obvious something like that happened. And the father said, get him to his mother as fast as you can. So she, they rushed him to his mother. When they brought him in, I imagine she was, he was listless because they laid him across her lap, and he laid there till noon and died. And the Bible says in verse number 21, she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Now stop right there. When she laid him on the bed of the man of God, it was an act of faith to say, look, the man of God prayed, and in a miracle, through his prayer, God gave me a baby. And if the man of God were to pray again and raise that child from the dead, it wouldn't be any more of a miracle than when he prayed and gave him the first time. But it may not happen. But one thing for dead sure, that man of God will not get any rest and any sleep, not in that bed, until he does something about that boy. I mean, he's going to have to move that child and put that child on the floor, or he's going to have to at least pray over that child. He's going to have to do one or the other before he gets any sleep tonight. And whatever God choose to do about it, that's God's business, but I'm going to lay it on the bed of the man of God. And I want to tell you something, friend. I don't think, I've never felt led to come to God and say, God, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, or you've got to do the other. God don't have to got to do anything. He is a sovereign God. He'll do what pleases him. And we don't always understand the ways of God. And I don't believe in that, but here's what I do believe. I do believe in what this woman did. This woman went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God saying, he'll have to, he'll have to do something about it. He'll have to say yes or no. He'll have to move it or, or do something, or, but he can't sleep in that bed. There'll be no rest. And I believe in bringing things to God and say, God, you'll not have any rest until you give me some kind of, I'm going to bring this to you, I'm going to lay this burden until you relieve me and tell me to go away and there's no more use to pray or until you answer the prayer yes or until you answer the prayer no. Uh, I'm, I'm not giving up and I'm not quitting and I'm going to keep on praying till the light breaks through. The Lord will answer, he'll answer you and God keeps his promise and his word is true. Just keep on praying till the light breaks through. 
And that's what she did. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. But hold the phone. We're almost to our text. Notice here. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. She didn't just shut the door. But she she looked at that dead child. And her heart was broken. And she didn't understand. And she had no answers. Why would God in a miracle give a boy like that and then take him? It doesn't make sense. It's against the order and logic of things. <clears throat> and I can see her as she starts out of the room and she looks at him. And she reaches over and gets the door handle of the door and she shuts the door, she don't just shut the door. She shuts the door upon him. There's a whole lot more said there than just closing a door. She shut the door upon it as though to say, it's in God's hands now. I can go no further. I can do no more than what I've done. I'm going to shut the door. Upon. And I'm speaking to people all over this room this morning who need to literally shut the door on some things. And with that in mind, I bring you a message entitled, Would You Please Shut the Door? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, I want to thank you and praise you for what you've done. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless us now in this message. Dear God, I've got 50 sermons I could preach this morning. I was looking over two books full of them this morning. Messages, I got a new book with new sermons in it, all kinds of messages. Uh, Lord, And but you brought me back to this. You, I went away from it. You brought me back to this. And I want to thank you, and you got a reason for it, and you got a purpose for it in more than one person here this morning. And I pray that you'll bless us, Holy Spirit of God. I've prayed, I've asked you, I've, I've sought the God of heaven, and now I pray, Lord, you'll show up in the service, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. We need to shut the door. We need to shut the door. We need to shut the door. Uh, we need to shut the door on some horrible things that we've done. Some horrible things that we've done. Uh, I was, um, had a lady in my church. She'd been in my church for years. She was a wonderful, faithful, sweet, godly, loved by everybody kind of a woman that was involved in the work of the Lord. Oh no, not in full-time ministry. Matter of fact, she didn't teach a class. She didn't sing in the choir. She didn't sing special songs. She didn't play an instrument. But brother, you talking about a servant. You talking about somebody that was there for everybody and anybody when they needed help and when they needed, I mean, I mean, look, girls would get married in the church that couldn't afford to have a nice wedding. She'd go to work and help them with decorations and help them create things and, 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 and she did her part to, to make sure they had a beautiful wedding. She was, she was a friend to... Look, if you had a meal, she would bring food. And she would bring as much food as anybody. And I'll tell you another thing. If you wanted to put somebody in charge of it, you could put her in charge of it. It would be done. It would be done right. It'd be done on time. And it'd be done without making any of the other ladies angry about anything. And that's a big order. 
Amen. I, I mean, listen, this woman, this woman was the kind of, look, let me tell you something, preacher. You, you can't build a good church without good men. But you can't build a church without some good women either. Now, you put that down. If you haven't learned that yet, you might as well get that one settled. You cannot build a church without some good women. And this was a good woman. And I, I mean, she'd been in the church for years. She'd raised her family. Her family was about grown. One day she came to me. I mean, she was always there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, always there in everything, in every practice for everything, every rehearsal for everything. I mean, she helped with the Jolly 60s. She, I don't know of anything, really, she wasn't involved in as far as being a servant. Not a, not a minister, but a servant. And <clears throat> one day she came to me. And she said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I said, all right. We went aside and sat down. She said, there's something I've never told anybody. I said, okay. She said, years ago, I murdered my little unborn baby. I had an abortion. And friend, that thing came out of her as fresh as if it had been something she did the night before. I mean, listen, little did I realize all those years I had known her, I had no idea, not just that she had done that, but that she was still dragging it along and dragging it along and dragging it along. I may get in trouble here, but let me see what I can do. She was just taking that old burden with her everywhere she went, dragging it along, dragging it along. Nobody could see it. Nobody knew it. She had been saved since then. She had asked God to forgive her multiple times since then. But some way, somehow, it was still with her. Some way, somehow, every morning when she woke up, she thought about it. All day she thought about it. She hated herself. She kept punishing herself. And even though Jesus Christ had already bled and died for what she did wrong. And she'd gone to God and asked God to forgive her for it. And God had washed her sins away, but she's still carrying it and carrying it every day of her life. It was just something about it that produced a wounded stigma on her emotions inside at such a young tender age as, as when she did it. And that some way it put a brand in her brain that she couldn't shake. It was like something that she could not throw away or shake. And every day of her life, she drug it along and drug it along. And she looked at me, she said, preacher they're not telling the truth to these women and girls about abortion she said it was a large abortion clinic she said there were several girls that had, had an abortion at the same time and she said uh, she said I, I, I was conscious I'd had the abortion and she said I was conscious and she said I, I opened my eyes and she said there were several in the room several girls and ladies and she said I could hear a girl she said by the way preacher they were all crying Oh, every one of them was crying in the room. She said, they're not telling the truth to these women and girls. She said, there was a girl behind me, and she was crying. And said, she said, I've killed my baby. I've killed my baby. She said, they're not telling the truth. And by the way, they're not. One woman had an abortion. She said, I've been years. She said, I still wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And she said, one and two o'clock in the morning. And she said, in my dream, I can hear my baby crying. And in my dream, she said, I get out of my bed. And she said, I'm looking for my baby. And I start opening closet doors and my baby's crying. And my baby's crying for me and I can tell. And she said, I'm opening closet doors and I'm trying to find my baby. And I'm looking everywhere and I can't find my baby. And she said, I'm, I'm searching the house. And she said, in my dream, I finally end up out on the front porch. And there's a hedge out there. 
And she said, I can see my baby in that hedge. And she said, my baby's reaching out like this, crying, and said, I'm leaning over the rail to try to get my baby, and I can't reach my baby. And she said, they're not telling the truth. And they're not. But I was glad to tell that woman something that she had never thought of and part of which I had never thought of. And I'm going to share it with you right now. It's in Isaiah chapter number 43. And here's what it said. Isaiah 43, 25. Listen to it. Listen to it. Don't want you to miss it. I, even I, this is God speaking. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins anymore. Now, boy, hey, look, I had preached on that. I'd quoted that for years, but I had never seen a truth that got a hold of me until that time. And here's what it was. God said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. First of all, I knew this. He said, I'm not just forgiving you. I'm going to blot it out. I'm going to erase it. I'm going to take it away. Matter of fact, I'm going to take the evidence away. So nobody could come back and see it, and, and, and the evidence of it. But he said, I even high am he that blotteth out thy... And boy, here's the one that I had never gotten. I even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake. I said, whoa! Lord... I can understand you blotting out my transgressions for my sake. But to blot them out for your sake? The Lord said, yes, for my sake. And I said, well, Lord, how could it benefit you? Why is it for your sake? And the Lord said, here's, here's what it is for my sake. When I look down at you, I want to blot that out and remove all evidence so I can forget it. I don't, when I look down at you, I want to love you as though that never happened. I want to use you as though you never in your lifetime had ever committed anything like that. I want to pour my joy into you, full joy, as though you never had in your lifetime ever even thought a thought of something like that. And because I want to love you that way and use you that way and feel you myself that way and think of you that way and pull you to myself that way, I'm going to blot it out and I'm going to take all the evidence away because I don't want to remember your sins anymore. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, they're good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Thank God. Thank God my sins are gone. And look, I've got a question to ask you. If a holy God took it, blotted it out, erased it. I mean, took the evidence away and forgot about it. He said, your sins and iniquities, well, I remember you no more. I've got a question to ask you. If he has erased it, taken it away, so he would forget about it, what in the name of common sense are you doing thinking about it and dragging it along and dragging it along? It's time to shut the door. And I'm telling you the truth, we all sit here as pretty nice people in church, but if you could pull a screen down this morning somewhere, and if you could see the things that people have done in this room, and you know that you did them, but, but you know, and, and you, listen, you've been saved since then, and you've been forgiven since then, but you still see yourself as a sub-level person because of what you did or what you said uh, uh, in your life. Friend, it's high time that you got right with God, and I don't mean confess your sins, you've already done that. I don't mean repent pinch. You've already done that. It's high time you got right with God and start acting like God's acting. He's forgiven you. He's washed your sins away. It's time to shut the door and quit dragging that junk around. Here was a woman been burdened all these years for something she shouldn't have been burdened about. You say, well, I, I've done wrong. Really? 
Have you really? Well, I tell you what, then. Anyone in this room that has never done wrong, would you come up here and sign my Bible right after service? I'd like to meet you. I've never met anybody like you. I don't, I've no, I don't know anybody like you. I, 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 you know, you're, a, you're an unusual person. I, you're the first of, of your kind that I've ever met. So would you come up here and just sign my Bible? I've never done wrong in my life. Look, we all, you cannot unscramble an egg. You cannot repeat history. You can learn from it, but you can't repeat it. You cannot go back in life. You either go forward in life or you die where you are. And here was a woman. Look, I, mean, I preached this in the church. It wasn't long ago. A man came to me and said, boy, you need to pray for me. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I'm a public school bus driver. And he said, I ran over a little girl and killed her. Now, you and I can share in the horror of that. But I said, you can't bring her back to life. And it's not the will of God for you as a saved man to die with her. God has a purpose in all of that. Who would kill a little girl if they knew what they were doing, unless they were so depraved, they willingly was willing to take somebody's life. And I said, that's not your case. You'd have given the world not to harm that little thing. It's time you shut the door. Shut the door. I, I had a preacher friend was preaching in a large youth conference, teen conference. And he preached on soul winning. And he talked about if, if there's somebody we should win, but we don't win them, their blood is on our hands. The Bible tells us about that. His blood will I require at your hand. And it was a large youth conference. Hundreds of young people there. It was Bobby Robinson's son, who it was, preaching. <coughs> and there was a teenage girl there who was a college student in a college that you would know, Baptist College. She had gotten word that her mother had cancer. She came home to win her mother to the Lord and you know how it is, the hardest people in the world to talk to is your own relatives. And she didn't get around to it, as Satan would have it. She came home two or three times, and every time she thought she was going to witness to her mother, her mother was lost, but she didn't. But she said, Mama's got plenty of time. I mean, this is not, this is not a fast cancer. Mama's got cancer. It's terminal. She's not going to live, but she'll live till Christmas. I'm going to talk to her. I'll have time. I'll get to her. I'll talk to her. But she got a shocking call. Sometime before Christmas, your mother just passed away. She was sitting in that service. It had been some time back that her mother's funeral was. And when he preached that sermon, she jumped up in the middle of that sermon, scared everybody to death. I mean, screamed. I let my mother go to hell. I let my mother go to hell. It's an awful thing when you let people go to hell. But there's a lot of other mothers that haven't gone to hell yet. I can't do anything about 
through and have a talk. I was telling Rhonda this morning, she and I had breakfast in the breakfast room at the motel. And I usually fi go find a place of prayer. This morning I found a place of prayer in the swimming pool area. Nobody was there and I got in the corner and spent some time in prayer. But there was two elderly ladies at a table eating. We, Rhonda and I got up after breakfast. I'd given out a couple of tracts. I said, honey, I want to talk to these two ladies and then we'll go pray. And I slipped over and began to talk to them. And buddy, they were mine. I mean, they were just, as I began to share the gospel, as sweetly as I've ever led a little child to God, both of those ladies received the Lord. But you know, I think about the time I went to the hospital, university hospital, to visit Tiny Richardson. They called him Tiny Richardson, about 50 years old, because he's such a huge guy. They called him Tiny. But anyway, Tiny was lost. Tiny had a reputation of being rough. Tiny had the reputation of the kind of guy you couldn't talk to. And I went in the room to talk to him, and... Uh, the nurse said, uh, uh, I, I'm, I, I won't be long, I'm working with him. But I was in a hurry. I had to get somewhere else. I said, uh, Tiny, I, I, he knew me. I said, I'll catch you later. And I said, I was going to talk to you. It may not do any, and here's what I told him. I said, it may not do any good right now because they're working with you. And he said, I don't know. It might do some good. And that is what I've been going through. It might do some good. And I'd never heard Tiny Richardson say anything like that before. And I left the room. I had an appointment. I had to be somewhere. But I thought, I got to get back and see Tiny. I let too much time go by. Tiny died. As far as I know, he went to hell. And it looked like God was softening his heart and making him more pliable to receive the Lord. Do I have blood on my hands? I may do. But one thing I know for sure, I can't bring Tiny Richardson back to life. But those two women this morning was not dead. And those people I won the other day at a motel, that fellow at the, behind the desk was not dead, and the other guy who'd taken a break was not dead. I've got to shut the door on some things. I failed. I failed, and I failed, and then I failed some more. And I can't do anything about my failures. All, only the future is a lie. Only the future. Let's just shut. You can't do anything about the future. You don't have any power. You don't have any carriage. And you don't have any willpower to even want to try until you shut the door on something. Look, if there's something you haven't confessed to God, confess it to God. And then accept his forgiveness. You don't have to travail over it. You don't have to labor over it. He's already travailed. He's already labored. You don't have to shed your blood. It ain't worth a dime if you do. But his blood was sinless blood and he shed his blood for your sins to wash your sins away. Gone, gone, gone. Why don't we just shut the door on some things? I could go on and on some horrible. What are you thinking about this morning? What, are you, what horrible thing are you thinking about? A woman came to me in the New England state. She said, I married the wrong man. I said, you may have married the wrong man, but you're now married to the right man. <laughs> what did you do that you shouldn't have done? What did you do that you, you can just spend the rest of your life regretting? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. God in heaven loves you. He's blotted out your transgressions. He's taken it away and he did it for his sake as well as your sake. And he don't want you to think about that anymore. And he don't want to look at that anymore. And because God don't want to look at it anymore and think about it anymore, he don't want you dragging out that old junk either.
He don't want you to do that. Why don't you shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. Shut. I mean, listen, I'm talking about people in this room right now, and you've been thinking about something, and you need to go over and just shut the door. Shut the door, shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things you've done. Number two, shut the door on some horrible things. Are you ready for this one? Shut the door on some horrible things people have done to you. Um, I was preaching in Maryland. I preached a sermon. <clears throat> it wasn't this sermon, some sermon. I can't remember what sermon it was, actually. It was a Sunday morning. There was 500 people there at the church. It was a great church, great service. <clears throat> it had been some years ago. They dismissed service. We had, the former governor was there. It was a big bake meeting. And, things, and wonderful results at the altar. And wonderful things happened. And... Um, they dismissed service. Most of the people had left. Three or four people standing around. A pastor was counseling with somebody. I'm sitting on the front row. And as I'm sitting there, wait, I'm pretty hungry. I'm waiting for the preacher. He said he's going to take me to eat. I'm pretty hungry. And so all of a sudden, a man walked up and a lady, man was 70-ish. And the lady I found out was his sister. She was 61 years old. He said, Pastor Brown, I said, yes, sir. He said, this is my sister and called her name. I said, nice to meet you, ma'am. He said, um, I think she lived with him in their home, and they only lived a few minutes from the church. He said, we were in service this morning. Said, so was service is over. Said, uh, we got in the car, and we were almost home, and my sister turned to me and said, I can't go home. I can't go home. I've got to talk to that preacher and tell him something that nobody knows. I can't go home. So he said, I said to my sister, well, if you need to talk to the preacher, we'll just go back and talk to the preacher. So we just turned the car around and came back. And he said, here we are. I said, wonderful. Sit down right here. And so the lady sat down. Her brother sat down beside her. I sat down over here. I said, tell me your story. She said, when I was a child, I was molested by a stepfather. I said, uh, how old were you? She said, from age 10 to 20. I said, 20? Couldn't you do anything about it? She said, you don't know what it's like to live in fear. She said, I was 38 years old before I got married because of it. And then she said, I married a man that ended up to be a drunk. Oh, but she said the joyful moment when they came and told me I was going to have a little baby. She said, for the first time in my life, since I was a little 10-year-old girl, for the first time in my life, I had a flicker of hope that I would have somebody in my life that I could love and trust that would not hurt me. For the first time in my life, I had somebody in my life that would love me without hurting me. She said, I can't tell you how happy I was. And then she said, one night, my husband got drunk, <coughs> kicked me, and killed the baby. She said, all my life, all my life, I felt like a worthless piece of filth. But I had the joy of telling that woman, there was a bomb in Gilead. There's a healing power through the one that marched up Calvary's hill and died for her and that it was time to shut. I said, lady, I told her some things she never thought about. I said, lady, are you aware of the fact that you're put in a position 
that I'll never be put in, as far as ministry, in the history of my life? Do you realize that if you knew how many women and girls were out there that had tasted of that bitter cup like you had, that you could speak to, that you could talk to, if they knew your story, if you could get victory now in Jesus Christ and go to them, do you realize what you could do to help people? They would never listen to me. They know I don't know because I've never gone through anything like that. But you have. And I gave her hope that there's a purpose in in her life. God is not, by the way, I don't care who you are, what you've done, what somebody has done to you. God is not done with you. You say, how do you know? You'd be dead if he was. There's nobody in this world that God don't have a purpose for. Nobody in this world that God don't have a Some horrible things people have done to you. What horrible thing has somebody done to you? I went on old man to the Lord. He was faithful in my church. He'd never been married, no bachelor. He got saved, but he had a face long as a mule eating sawbriars. I've never seen anything except that. Looked like a buzzard sitting on the fence waiting to die. <clears throat> and I tried to speak to him because nobody did. He was just an old hermit. And I tried to speak to him. I tried to be nice to him. You know, just, just everybody ought to have some kind of in, word of encouragement, some friend, of, at least remotely. And so one day I stopped and said, Simon, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. I said, Simon, I said, uh, never got married, did you? I was trying to pick conversation. I said, you never got married? Nope. He said, I said, so you never found Miss Wonderful, did you? He said, nope. And then he said, yeah, I did. I said, you did? He said, yeah. I was young. She was young. The most beautiful girl that I ever knew in my life. And I liked her, and she liked me. Then I loved her, and she loved me. And we wanted to get married. But he said, you got to understand, her and her family had money, lots of money. And me and my family, we were poor, real poor. And when her mother heard that she had a liking for me, she said, no way, no way, no way, no way, no way will you ever marry that boy. And he said, her mom and dad broke us up. And he said this, man, you know, if you could get behind the walls of people. He said this, he said, I'll never forget when they broke us up. And I knew there was no hope that I could ever marry that girl. He said, I went out yonder onto a lonely hill. And I set that rifle down with the butt on the ground. And I I put the point of the gun right here to my temple. And I reached down with my hand and laid my hand on that trigger. And then he looked up at me and said, I wish a thousand times I'd have pulled that trigger. And I thought, Lord, help us. If he'd only shut the door, he didn't have to live the kind of life he lived for the next 50 years. If he'd only, sh- only stop and realize there's more than one girl in the world. Well, she was the one for me. You, if God closed the door, she was not the one for you. I'm speaking to some young men and young ladies here now. And I'm trying to tell you, 
You say, oh, but I'm convinced. You're convinced, but God's not convinced. Why don't you let God have your life? And why don't you trust God with your life? Did it ever occur to you, young lady or young man, that God may be trying to protect you from something? Did it ever occur to you there's things that you don't know that God knows and in his providence he's trying to shield you from some uh, unhappy life with somebody that really you thought you needed but you really didn't need? Did you ever stop? You might end up like man told my pastor used to tell about a fellow that went to the mental institute to visit a guy. And as he was walking along, coming down the cell block, and people were pretty bad off in that division, and he passed a man. He was standing at the bars like this, staring straight ahead. You could tell he was gone. And he was staring straight ahead, and this man was saying, Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. And this pastor asked the guard, he said, walked by, I said, what's his problem? He said, well, years ago as a young man, he fell in love. He was a teenager. He fell in love with a girl by the name of Lulu. And he loved her and wanted to marry her, but before he could marry her, somebody with more money, more personality, more talent, and a whole lot more looks came by and swept Lulu off her feet. And so he lost Lulu. Well, they walked on a little bit and said he never got over it. Instead of just dismissing it, said he never got over it. And so he stood here for years. He went stone crazy thinking about Lulu. He stood here for years going, Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. Well, they walked a little bit further. There was a man, sure enough, in a bad shape. I mean, he couldn't even stand up. He was down on the floor, saliva running out of his mouth. His hair was hanging down his eyes. His eyes wouldn't even focus. He was looking up, and here's what he was saying. Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. And this pastor chuckled and said to the guard, I guess he lost Lulu too. He said, no, he didn't lose Lulu. He's the one that got Lulu. And he was in a worse shape than the one who lost Lulu. Did you ever stop and think that God could be trying to protect you from something, from someone? A fellow ran an ad on the internet for a wife, and a friend asked him, said, you get the response on this? He said, oh, yeah, I got a lot. He said, what did most of them say? He said, most of them said, here, take mine, take mine. You can have mine if you want. Do you need to shut the door on some horrible things that people have done? Look, I had a pastor's wife come up to me. I preached my wolf sermon. A pastor's wife came up to me, and she, here's what she said. She said, Pastor, she said, we were in a church, and we gave our life to that church. We won souls. We walked halls when they were sick and having their babies, and we helped them in, in their problems of life and salvaged their marriages when their marriages were about to fall apart. And those same people, by the scores turned on us, criticized us, split our church, drove a knife in our back as though it were, and walked out of our lives as though, see, she said, we, we'd, we'd given to them. We'd done everything we could. And she said, I wasn't bitter then, and I'm not bitter now. And I wasn't angry then, and I'm not angry now. But she said, some way, somehow, it has done something to me I cannot get over. I don't seem to be able to get that spark back. I, I don't seem to get that inward excitement about reaching out and helping people. When you've been bit so bad, when you've been hit so hard, when you've been done so wrong, sometimes you just have to stop and say, look, 
Am I going to die here with this situation? Am I going to let it kill the spark of my life? Am I going to let it incapacitate me from being that person God wants me to be? Or will I just simply go over and say, by the grace of God, I'm going to shut the door. Shut the door, shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things people have done to you. My wife, I don't know if she's ever shared this with you ladies, don't know what she talked this morning. <coughs> but my wife and her husband started a church, built it 400. And one female wolf tore that thing all to pieces. First thing you try to do is starve them out. Cut their salary until they had to move out of their house into a shabby house and then kept on until they had to give up the only house they had and move into the church. They were building a building. The thing was growing, got up to 400, Pastor. And there was a steel building. They didn't have the walls up inside, but they had the framing up. And so Rhonda said she and Jerry hung sheets up for dividers, cooked on a hot plate, bathed in the baptistry. Their only little daughter got pneumonia. People come into church at night, scare them to death. When Jerry was working, he was working at Job Corps trying to buy groceries. <laughs> I don't know if Rhonda shared this with you or not, but not long ago, she asked Travis, she said, Travis, you remember that awful time when their children were young then? She said, Travis, you remember that awful time we went through when they did us like they did in that church and we had to move into church and cook on a hot plate and bathe in the baptistry and it was cold. He said, well, Mom, I remember moving in the church, but we didn't think it was a hard time. We thought it was fun. Who else gets to move in the church? Who else gets to bathe in the baptistry? Who else? Friend, it's not what you can or cannot give your children that's going to be the success of your children. It's your attitude. It's your attitude. Rhonda never got bitter about that. She went on and served the Lord, faithfully serving the Lord. Some horrible things people have done to you. Shut the door. What are you thinking about right now? You say, oh, I, I forgot that. Have you really? Well, you know, I don't, I don't hate that person. No, maybe you don't or maybe you do and don't know it but you haven't shut the door on what somebody has done to you. There's things that by the grace of God, Paul, the apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are before. He said, well, he didn't have the things to forget, I do. Well, he might have more to forget than you did. He stood there while his servants took rocks and busted Stephen's brains open and he was a man of God and his face shone like an angel and he saw heaven open and Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father welcoming him home. And they laid those bloody clothes down at Paul's feet. That's what he had to think about at night. But he said, I forget it, I forget it, I'm going to shut the door. Shut the door on some horrible things that I've done and shut the door on some horrible things people have done to me. Here's another thing. I feel a draft, by the way. Somebody's left a door open somewhere. Somebody's left a door open somewhere. And there's people in this room who know who it is. It's time you shut the door. Oh, some horrible things you've done, some horrible things people have done to you. Real quickly now. Only three points and then a conclusion. You need to shut the door. 
if the first two didn't get you, I think I'll nail you on the third one. If you don't need to shut the door on some horrible things you've done or shut the door on some horrible things people have done to you, how about do you need to shut the door on some horrible things people have done to people that you loved? How about that one? Let me give you, let me give you a truth. And if you want to jot these references down, you can. You don't have to, but this will, ch this will change your life. I'd never seen this till not long ago. In 2 Samuel 17, 23, listen to what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 17, 23. says this. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and got the rose and got him to his house and into his city and put his house in order and hanged himself. Now, wait a minute. Ahithophel saw his counsel was not followed, and he went home and committed suicide. Let me give some context. Ahithophel was the right-hand man of King David. He was a counselor so gifted of God that his word was as the oracle of God. The word oracle means the word. It's like you were inquiring of God to know what to do, and that's how wise Ahithophel was. Well, he, th he was David's right-hand man, and he thought David was the angels with wings on. And in the middle of David's great ministry, he defected and ran away from David and joined David's worst enemy, who happened to be David's son, Absalom, who was trying to kill his own father to run him off the throne. And when he joined Absalom, Absalom was tickled to death that his father's chief counselor had come to join him. And so Absalom came up with a plan to kill King David. And the plan would leave him to be the one that would draw the bow to kill him. And I won't go into the plan he presented. Well, at that time, and before Ahithophel got there, um, Absalom had another counselor. And this other counselor came up with a plan to kill King David that was different than Ahithophel. And <clears throat> Absalom says, the Lord hath chosen to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, and I'm going to take the counsel of the other. Now, when, he, when Ahithophel heard that his counsel was not followed, he went and killed himself. And all these years, Pastor, I've scratched my bald spot. <laughs> and I've said, Lord, it's bad when another man gets your job. But to commit suicide over it? Didn't make sense. It was crazy. And then I found the answer in the Bible. And it'll change your life. So now you've got a half a fail. You know the background of why he killed himself because his counsel was not followed. Now, the second verse is same book, chapter 23, and verse 34. And listen to what it says, real briefly. It gives in genealogy, Eliphet, the son of Abishai, the son of Machaite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam, the son of who? Ahithophel. So, now this Ahithophel who had committed suicide, he's got a son named Eliam. Now, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? Hold on, you're going to find out. Listen to the next verse. Same book, chapter 11, verse number 3. Here's what it says. And David sent and inquired after the woman. So now David's lusting after a woman in 2 Samuel chapter 11, a time when kings go forth to battle, but he, didn't, he wasn't where he's supposed to be, and he saw what he had never seen if he had been where he's supposed to be. So he looks and lusts after this woman taking a bath on top of the roof, and he sends somebody to get her, and he brings her. 
And as he sends for her, somebody makes a statement. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba? Why is he, why is he want to talk to her? Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? Remember that name? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, wait a minute. What's he sending for her for? That's Uriah's wife. That's the daughter of Eliam. And Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. Do you get it? Here is Ahithophel, who in the middle of all his loyalty and love for King David, watched King David murder his granddaughter's husband so he could have his granddaughter for himself. And he knew what a great soldier Uriah was. He knew how true and pure he was. And he watched David murder his granddaughter's husband so he could take his wife to be his. And it was more than he could take. So he came up with a plan to kill King David because he was bitter. And when his plan was not followed, he killed himself. Did you know bitterness will eat you alive? The worst cancer in the world is not the one you heard about over at the hospital. The worst cancer in the world is that cancer of bitterness and hate inside of you that just eats away. And sometimes you cover it up and, and even try to lie to yourself about it. But it's still there. Somebody said bitterness. Watch it, watch it. Somebody said bitterness is a poison that you drink in hopes that it'll kill your enemy. Bitterness is a poison that you drink in hopes that... Look, <clears throat> there's a story. It's been told two ways. I, I, I know it happened, and I think I have the, the correct version of the two. But in Civil War time, there had been a great battle between the Union and Confederate side. And General Lee was riding his horse down the road where the battle had taken place the day before. And there were dead horses laying everywhere. Thousands of people had died. It was a major battle. And as he's riding along, looking at all that carnage, flanked by his generals, he comes up to a big old two-story house. <coughs> and the lady of the house comes out, and she recognizes him. Oh, she goes into this tirade about worshiping. Oh, generally, generally. She said, generally, look what those blasted Yankees have done. They, there was cannonball holes all through the house. The Union Army was up on the hill. The, conf uh, 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 the, uh, the Confederate Army was up on the hill. And the Union Army was down below. And they were shooting through the house. She said, look at that. You can't live in that house. They've shot our house all to pieces. And look at this tree, big old oak tree there. That thing had been chewed up with cannonballs and musket balls until the limbs were just chewed up and hanging. She said, you know it's going to die. My great-grandfather planted that tree, and my father uh, swang on that when he was a little boy, and, and, and my grandfather and my father, and when I was a little girl, I swang on it. And look at it. You know it's going What are you doing with something like that? What do you do with it? How do you handle that? What do you do with it? General Lee is riding his horse around, his horse is named Traveler, and he was riding him around the tree. 
And when he got done, he started off down the trail. And this lady saw he was going to leave. And she said, well, well, General Lee, General Lee, you didn't tell me what you'd do about the tree. He said, whoa, traveler. And he looked back and said, lady, if I were you, I'd just cut it down and forget it. And I'm speaking to people all over this room that just need to cut some junk down and forget it. Just cut it down and forget it. I mean, just shut the door, shut the door. I feel a draft. Somebody left a door open somewhere. I feel a draft. Shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things that people have done to you, to you. And if you don't close that door, it's going to kill you. I'll tell you this story, and I'll move into the conclusion and we'll be done. Every year, Jack Lowe came to our church, and every year he gave his testimony. And every year he told the same story the same way, and every year he never preached. He wasn't a preacher. He didn't claim to be a preacher. And every year we had people saved, and every year we had people come forward, and I heard it with my own ears more than once, the testimony he gave. I don't even see him down at the old building now. He's giving this testimony. It was amazing. And I don't have time to tell you the whole story. Let me give you the gist of it. And I don't think you'll ever forget it. He said, when I was a little five-year-old boy, my daddy died. I don't know how his daddy died. He was a young man, still in his 20s. He said, my mother was still in his 20s. And he said, you know, <clears throat> he said, I was in school. I didn't have friends because I, I, I didn't go to school. I didn't have a brother. I didn't have a sister. I was the only child. <clears throat> and he said, you know, he said, uh, when you're a child, you don't think about your mother being pretty or not pretty. He said, you children just don't think. But he said, as I got older, as the years came and went, I realized what an absolute beautiful mother I had. And he said, because my mother was so beautiful, there was a certain man began to give attention to my mother. And when she realized that he was, she avoided him like the plague for two reasons. Number one, she was still grieving over her husband. And number two, she knew too much about this guy. She knew that if she was going to get involved in somebody, it would not be this man. And, but he kept pursuing and kept pursuing and kept pursuing until finally she had to get pretty abrupt with him. And he said, I'll never forget one day was picking blackberries. I think it was just across the state line up in Virginia. And said, we were picking blackberries. And I had my, I had my pail, little pail, almost full of blackberries, little metal pail, almost full of wild blackberries. Mama said, now when we get, get our pails full, we're going to go to the house and make us a blackberry cobbler. Oh, man. And he said, we about picked out the berries. And she said to me, she said, uh, son, I see some berries on up the bank here, but uh, if we try to get to them, we're getting too many briars. And besides, there's copperheads and rattlesnakes here, so we don't want to take any chances. Said so we stepped down off the bank to this wagon road where we was going to go up the road a little ways to get back up on the bank. And said, he, she reached and got my hand and pulled me down off the bank. And the woman was still 25 years old or so. And said, he pulled me down off the bank and said, when she did, a man stepped out from behind a bush, an evergreen bush, eight feet away. Now, I'm about eight feet from that pulpit. Now, we're not talking, eight feet's not very far. And said, he stepped out from behind a bush, eight feet away. It was that man that had been pursuing her. And said, he raised a 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun and pulled both triggers at the same time right into my mother's stomach. 
said he cut my mother half in two. She was dead when she hit the ground. And he said, I dropped down on her, and I slipped my little hand under her head, and her eyes just rolled back and twitching and blood running all over her and me. And I said, Mama, I'll get him. I'll get him. If it's the last thing in this world I do, I'll kill him for you, Mama. I'll kill him. And there's where the horrid story starts of his hate and bitterness. And as a little five-year-old boy, can you imagine? And he grew up all his life. Thirst, he said, I remember when they gave him life in prison instead of the electric chair, tickle me to death. I didn't want him to kill him. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to be the one to kill him. And he said, and he told the story about how he grew up tr trying to figure every way in this world to get behind the walls of that prison to kill the man who took away from him everything in this world he had to live for. But they said, Jack Lowe, we know you and we know who you are and we know who your mother was. You'll never see that man. He'll live and die in that prison and you'll never see him. Forget it. And then he got saved. And I won't, boy, I won't go into, I don't, can't go into his testimony about how he got saved. But all of a sudden, he started trying to get behind the walls of that prison for a reason he had never had in his life. And he got some pastors and Christian workers to work with him and put some legislators even and to work with prison authorities until finally one day, to make it as short as I can, finally one day he said, standing with that guard, that big hydraulic door opened and I walked through and clanged behind me and then another hydraulic door opened and I walked through and said as we walked along, we was on the outer court of the cell block and it was a beautiful sunshiny spring day and said as we walked along, there was a wall like as long as this auditorium here and it was rock wall and said at the top of that rock wall was some beautiful flowers growing and said at the end of that wall was an old man tending to the flowers. And the guard said, stop. He said, I stop. He said, you see that old man down there? I said, yes, sir. He said, that's the man that killed your mother. Jack said, can I talk to him? He said, as long as I'm with you. He said, we walked down. He said, I said, sir, you got some pretty flowers here. Well, thank you, sir. He said, I, I do this every spring. He said, um, they let me do this. I enjoy working with flowers and gives me, passes time, gives me something to do. I ain't going nowhere for sure. Might as well do this. He said, you got a minute we can talk? I said, sure. He said, can we sit down right here? He said, sure. He said, we went over and sat down on a bench nearby. He said, I had not sat down on that bench till I looked him square in the eye and said, Sir, my name is Jack Lowe. He said you could look in his eyes and tell when it hit him who he was talking to. And said, when I said, my name's Jack Lowe, said he stared at me for the longest time. And then he slowly turned his head away and said, Oh. He said, Mister, you see this hand right here. He said, yes, sir. He said, you're looking at a hand that loaded and unloaded a 38 a thousand times, dreaming of the day when I could kill you. He said, sir, you took away from me everything in life I had. I had no daddy. I had no brother. I had no sister. I had no friend. I had no one. And you, but except my mother, and you took her away from me. And I've thirsted to kill you, to get behind these walls and kill you. And you're looking at the hand that loaded and loaded that gun a thousand times. He said, what do you see in that hand today? The old man looked and said, well, it looks like a Bible. He said, it is a Bible. And he told that old man how he got saved and won him to God in the prison. And later they paroled him. They later paroled the old man. And that old man went to Jack Lowe's house and stayed at his house. He gave him a place to live in his own house until they could find a place for him. One of the greatest stories of love and forgiveness you ever heard in your life because one man, I said one man among many, many men just shut the door.
Shut the door. Shut the door. I don't know what somebody's done wrong to you. I don't know how they hurt you. I don't know what they took from you. I don't know how they crippled you, either physically or otherwise. And I don't know what they did to somebody you love. Let me tell you something, friend. I don't mean to sound pious, but I've, I've pondered this in my mind through 58 years of preaching. I believe there was somebody here this morning didn't like something I preached, and you got up out of your pew, and you came down here and took your fist and knocked me down in this floor. I honestly believe God had given me the grace to get up and wipe the blood off and go on and finish the sermon. But if that same man were to get up out of his seat and come down here and grab that woman right there and jerk her out now and knock her down, oh boy, right there's where the climate changes. Right there's where somebody's going to have to hold this boy. This bald-headed Baptist preacher is going to be climbing up somebody's carcass real fast. I mean, it's, it's going to happen so fast you won't know what happened. He said, well, you little shrimp, I'd whip you. You'd have it to do, bud. You'd have it to do, and I might surprise you at my age. I might get one off on you. you, you <laughs> it's an easy thing sometimes when they do bad things to you, but when they start hurting people you love. Oh, boy, and I'm speaking to people all over this room, but you've got to shut the door on it. You're going to have to shut the door, and if you don't, you'll never, ever have that radiance that God wants you to have. Psalms 84, 6, blesses he that passeth through the valley of Baca. Weeping makes it a well. Instead of a bitter pool makes it a well. I've got a dozen illustrations. I'm going to give one. A little baby was born. Perfect little thing. And not long after it was born, I'll give you her name in just a moment. Not long after she was born, a month old. A month old, a well-meaning old family doctor came by. She had a little irritation in her eye, and he put something in her eye to make it better. He accidentally put the wrong thing, and she was blinded. At a month old, she never saw the light of day and died in her 70s. But when that little girl was eight years old, she wrote these words. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world continued I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep inside because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Oh, by the way, for your general information, later on she wrote these words. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. She also wrote, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. She also wrote, saved by grace. She also wrote, I shall know him, I shall know him him. She also wrote, safe in the arms of Jesus. She also wrote, Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling thee home. She also wrote, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. She also wrote, pass me not, O gentle Savior. And 8,000 other songs in him. Her name was Fanny Crosby. And she has kept fundamental Christian singing for three generations now. Because, you know why she did? Because she looked at the thing that had happened to her that she could not change and just shut the door, shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. And boy, I'm telling you, I can. I don't have a clue who pastor never told me about anybody anywhere that needed anything, but I'm telling you right now, the Holy Ghost of God is telling me right now, somebody, and more than one somebody's in this room right now that just needs to shut the door on some junk. And some of you need to shut the door on some junk so you can be saved. I walked into a Waffle House with my wife. 
I pass out tracts everywhere I go. There's a man sitting over there, a 50-ish type man. I gave him a tract. He said, oh, what's this? I told him, I said, what's a little gospel tract? Tell you how you can go to heaven when you die. He said, I can't be saved. I said, you can't be saved. I said, you're the first man I ever met that couldn't be saved. He said, can't be saved. I said, how come? He said, because I hate the man that killed my daughter. And he told the story, to make a long story short. His daughter got involved in a Pentecostal-style church, and a preacher, meaning well, felt like that she didn't need her medication. She was a diabetic and had epilepsy, had seizures. And he took her medication away from her. She had a seizure and died. And he said, my wife divorced me because I wouldn't kill him. And he said, I can't be saved because I hate the man that murdered my daughter. I sat down and talked to him. And I told him that although that young pastor was sadly misguided and had no right to take anybody's medicine away from him, he didn't mean to kill his daughter. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was deceived by false doctrine. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he wasn't. And I talked to him to no avail, I thought, and I went on to eat my breakfast in a little bit. I heard that man pray out loud, praying out loud. My wife didn't hear it. I heard it. I said, wait right here, and I went over. I said, sir, I heard you pray. And he said, I just read your little track, and at the end here it had a prayer, and I prayed and asked God to save me. He had to close the door on I'm speaking to people in this room that needs to go to heaven. All people need to go to heaven. But some of you are not saved yet. Maybe you need to close the door on something so you can come and be saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking around. I wonder how many folks are here and you'd say, <clears throat> Pastor Brown, let's talk to Christians first. Pastor Brown, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven when I die. <coughs> But God spoke to my heart while you were preaching this morning. It may be something way back yonder. <coughs> what do you keep carrying it around for? What do you keep dragging it around for? Something way back yonder. How many would say, Pastor Brown, God spoke to my heart this morning, and I will not lie to you, and I will not lie to God. Would you pray for me? Slip your hands up. Hold them up. Hands are going up everywhere. God bless you. How about it? There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Somebody else. Somebody else. I, I need. Pray for me, Pastor Brown. Pray for me. Slip up that hand right now. Hold it up. Hold it up. Yes, ma'am. There's a lady and a man. Husbands and wives raising their hand. Here's a lady raising her hand. Here's another man back here and another woman back there. I do not know how many there's been. I didn't count them. God keeps the score. Yes, ma'am, there's another hand. God bless you. And sir, I saw this hand here. Yes, and up, up front here. Yes, I see this hand. God bless you. And anybody else, anyone else. Now look, here's what I want you to do. Here's the good news. The good news is that you don't have to come down here and confess your sins to me. I'm not the Pope, and if I was, I couldn't resolve your sin. But I know who can, and you come down here and you can tell the Lord Jesus. It may be of something of the very nature that would be wise and smart for you not to tell anybody but God. But you come down here and talk to him and tell him about it. It may not be anything at all wrong you've done. It may be something somebody did wrong to somebody that you loved. But you come down here and you kneel at this altar and talk to God about that. You've already admitted God spoke to you. Would you raise your hand and then sit there like a nodder in the log knowing that you should come to the altar? You really ought to come. Now let me ask this question. How many folks are here and you'd say, Pastor Brown, I don't know for sure if I died and go to heaven, but I need to know and I want you to pray for me. I need to get this matter settled. Hold your hand up. Hold it up. Hold over the room. Hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up. 
Anybody? Yes, there's one. Anybody else? I don't know for sure if I died and go to heaven. Pray for me. Slip your hand up right now. Will you do it? Will you do it? Slip it up. Holy Spirit of God, there's been one person raised their hand that maybe they need to be saved, but there's been a lot of God's people raised their hand that they're still dragging something along that they should have dropped a long time ago. Lord Jesus, help us to put our sins where you put them, in the sea of forgetfulness, blotted out, evidence removed and gone, because when God looks down at us, he wants to love us with a love as though we never committed anything like that in our life. And help us, oh God, to shut the door, shut the door on some horrible things we've done and some horrible things people have done to us and some horrible things people have done to those that we love. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Do you really think that we ought to sing 32 verses, some tear-jerking song, so you can sit around and decide whether you ought to come to the altar or not? After raising your hand, look, and if you've got to look around and see if others, sure there'll be others coming, but what difference does that make? If you've got to look around and see if others come so you know whether you come or not, why don't you just stay in your pew? You don't mean business for God anyway. But if you say live, die, sink, swim, get fat or die skinny, I'm going to go to that altar because God spoke to my heart and I raised my hand and now I'm going to put some feet on obedience to 